afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, whatever time of day it is, welcome to this inaugural episode of Politics with Ears. With me in the studio this afternoon are two very wonderful gentlemen, uh, the first of which is Toby. Toby, introduce yourself. Um, hi, my name's Toby and my pronouns are he, him. And with me as well is Joe, introduce yourself, young lad. Hello, I'm Joe and my pronouns are also he, him. And my name is Adria, and my pronouns are also here. Um, so, guys, it really is a remarkable time to be alive. Just this weekend, we've had, uh, you know, number of things going on, not just in Europe, around the world. Namely, obviously, here at home in the United Kingdom, the country going into its second national lockdown, at least in England. Um, but of course, you know, as we could talk about a million things in 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 this episode, we will talk about the upcoming uh, impending doom. That is polling day in America, uh, and and specifically, we're going to be talking about how we can fix America, how to avoid another election like this one, like two thousand twenty. So, why is America so bitterly divided? I think it's quite a deliberate thing, really, isn't it? It's sort of the actions of the political establishment, particularly on the Republican side, and in addition to the establishment, the choice of Trump as a candidate like they're kind of purposely trying to divide the country either you're a MAGA supporter make America great again or you're not you know what do you mean they're trying to divide the country I mean that Donald Trump is running an election where he is saying you are either vote for me or you're a socialist or you either vote for me or you're not patriotic you don't support law and order you want chaos, you want anarchy. He's trying to give an ultimatum effectively. He's trying to turn politics into an ultimatum where either you support him or you're the enemy. But surely he's just speaking to his base because a lot of people in America do hold those particular sort of political opinions. I mean, surely, surely America's already divided and he's just come in there and exposed that divide. Rather than exposed, I would say he really has played on that for his own personal benefit. I think most people will agree with that, and obviously Twitter would be the, the best source of uh, information for that. Uh, if we just cast our minds back a year, I remember when one summer day uh, there was bad news about the economy, and in order to distract from that, what he does is send out a tweet about how four uh, congresswomen of colour should go back to the crime, quote, crime-infested countries uh, from which they came. and. Whilst a lot of people will think that that was just him in a rage, you know, at 5am when he couldn't sleep, whatever, the fact is it probably wasn't in a rage, and the, f- the fact is that he probably intended to, well, A, distract from, uh, from the news, but B, as you say, remind his base that, that he's still with them. Yeah, he's exploiting. And obviously the... the yeah, he's exploiting the divide that's there exactly. for his own yeah. personal gain. I think I agree with you, Joe, in the sense that he's not come in and created division. Systemic racism has always exist, existed as long as the US has existed as a nation. Like, these issues have always been there, but whether it's because previously it was just deemed as inappropriate and he doesn't care what the perception of his him is, he just he, he's not trying to be bipartisan, he's just maybe he's the only person who's coming and, and thought... That, but that's interesting, but yeah. sure, surely the, the American system is to blame for that problem, the fact that somebody like that can enter into it. And, and Do you mean the electoral system? I think perhaps what, it is, what I mean is the culture. 
like the culture of American politics. Because, for example, in the UK, you have very specific things that you can and can't say. Like you can't call someone a liar in in the House no, of Commons, um, and uh, all sorts of things like that. Do, do you have another example? From the UK. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other day, you know, Deputy Labour leader uh, Angela Rayner called one of the um, one of the Tory MPs scum. Although the the audio didn't actually pick that up. What the audio picked up was the Tory MP saying the right honourable lady just call me scum and obviously the the deputy speaker of the house uh, I mean I can, I can imagine John Burke completely losing the plot of someone using that word in, in his chamber order uh, <laughs> exactly um, yeah I mean but I, I would say that can be a bit too far because someone can someone could stand up in the house of commons and say the truth i.e. call someone a liar they would be saying the truth and yet they would be expelled from the chamber. Yeah, absolutely, so. absolutely, and that is a problem. I think the UK's probably gone too far the other way because they're, yeah. but at least too in some sense, formality but, but still, people people aren't sort of actively racist. They actively make racist comments in the House of Commons, uh, House of Commons, and things. Yeah. Whereas in the US, it's it's sort of become much more acceptable than it was even uh, five years ago, for example. Exactly. Yeah, and, and surely it always had the potential to become like that. Because the system, I, I agree with you. But I'm I'm wondering what in the system facilitates that. It's this the Senate is in theory what's meant to be able to hold the president to account, right? Through impeachment. Yeah. That that uh, impeachment is the process. They are the jury on in yeah. the impeachment trial. Yeah. But, but it's not just impeachment. But but what what's different? What's what's changed now is that the the Senate is majority Republican, and that Republican Senate. Don't really care what Trump does. I don't know whether it's Mitch McConnell's influence as an individual, if he's decided that he just is going to do as much as he can to maintain the value and power of conservatism, but they have made the conscious decision not to hold him to account for these comments. When the impeachment trial went on and there was clear evidence presented against him, they didn't do anything about it. I think if you just look at the way they nominate the Supreme Court justices now compared to 30 years ago, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was nominated, a handful of Senate members voted against her nomination, despite her being clearly a more progressive judge. And now if you look at whether it's Brett Kavanaugh or you look at Amy Coney Barrett, there is very much a divide. It's not a handful. It's the entirety of one party, generally speaking, with maybe one or two exceptions, are voting one way, and the entirety of the other party are voting the other. Like it's and by the way, the, the other day when uh, Justice Barrett was confirmed, it was the first vote in history, uh, in, in, in modern American history, that uh, for a judicial nomination, the opposing party didn't even vote once. Yeah, very clearly there is now a divide yes. within Congress. I think the system of checks and balances has started working for the administration instead of holding them to account. So they're doing everything they can to support and prop up Trump. Balance power in the American system, right, is yeah. between the executive, which yeah. is Trump, Congress, yeah. and the court, Supreme Court. Yeah. And Trump seems to have at least everyone in his party, in the Senate, on his side. And then he has the Supreme Court on his side, so there is a real accumulation of yeah. uh, an accumulation of authoritarian power. I mean, um, I personally don't think America is much of a democracy, and I, I think 
the last four years have helped expose that. Can we just can we just clarify specifically what you mean when you say you don't think it's a democracy? Because for a lot of people, that's going to be quite a controversial statement. Yeah. Um, the point is that plenty of dictatorships hide under the veneer of democracy and they do have elections. The only two choices are these two parties. One serves corporate interests and very is very open about it, and the other serves corporate interests but is more socially liberal um, and, and tries to distance themselves to, to a degree from corporate interests. The latter being the Democrats. Yeah, the Democratic Party. That actually brings me quite nicely back to your original question, which is how do we bring democracy back to America? And I think step one is um, Citizens United, which is a decision, decision in the Supreme Court in 2011, 2010, sorry, which basically had the potential to limit the amount of money that one organization or individual can donate to a political campaign. It was trying to stop the influence of money from big corporations, whether it be the NRA or someone else. It's to stop you from buying your way to office. Yeah, literally. that's what exists, and the Supreme Court voted against it. So it didn't, it didn't happen. So I think probably the way to bring democracy back is to try and remove that element of money that doesn't really seem to exist in what you would describe as more democratic states. Yeah, like for example in, in the United Kingdom, I consider the United Kingdom to be a lot more democratic than America. I agree. Uh, because you need loads of money to even stand as a, a congress person or a, or a senator. Yeah. I think, well, fun fact, uh, as congressmen and women, when they first come into office, they need to raise, I think it's $10,000 every week, because obviously they're, they're on a two-year cycle, you know, they, they, they need a $10,000 weekly... And as soon as you get there, that's it. $10,000 every week. And that's ridiculous. And by the way, can I, can I just add that the Congress person who has raised the most money this time around has been Alexandria. Woo! Ocasio Cortez, member of the... Uh, District. It just goes to show you how difficult it is to get someone like um, AOC coming into office because they do need so many more backers than your average um, than your average congressperson who will have a big money backer, just a, a single or, or a few, a very small number of big money backers and, and therefore they're going to represent corporate interests. And that's why I'd almost consider America to be more of an oligarchy um, than a democracy because the corporations are the ones in power. So we've talked about money. Um, now let's talk about how many people actually have a say in who rules them, right? So another interesting fact. On average, uh, one representative in Washington, uh, be it a, well, Congress, uh, men and women specifically, they represent 700,000 people on average. So that's one representative per uh, 700,000 people and to put it into perspective in the United Kingdom it's anywhere between uh, 60 and 90,000 which still sounds pretty big but you know it's a tenth <laughs> almost of more than a tenth isn't it? Y yeah it's, it's, about it's, it's almost let's not get into the maths <laughs> that's not our strong suit a tenth of what it is in the US and, and it's, it's, it's not fair to just say well, the US is a bigger country it's rubbish I mean there are only there are only 435 uh members in the House of Representatives, there could be more. 700,000 people don't have the same interests. Do you think it would be valuable to increase the number of representatives? I, I don't know exactly how uh, the system works in, in the American House, 
But if it's anything like the British House, then I'd imagine there'd also be front benches and back benches. And some people will get to talk a lot more than other people. And so if you increase the number of representatives, then you'd have more people who'd need time to speak. And I'm, I'm wondering if just on a practical level that would really be possible. I mean, speaking is really by no means the only way to represent your constituents. No. I mean, yeah, obviously you're right that there would be a time issue. And not, not to mention, I mean, in the House of Commons we have, you know, broadly speaking, in the House of Commons members are respectful, you know, even if the opposing party has a you know, point of order. Uh, largely speaking, they're quite nice to each other. They'll they'll take a point of order. They'll 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 be quick. The, the Speaker helps people be quick. In in the Senate and and in the House, especially in the Senate, we have the tradition of the filibuster, which means that you know a member. Uh, I, I think Toby has a very good example of when Bernie did this back in 2009, um, uh, they can just talk forever, literally. Yes, yeah, so um, Bernie Sanders in 2010 takes the floor for eight and a half hours, no breaks, and he talks continuously in order to try and protest a bipartisan tax bill that was being presented by Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell. Yeah. I mean, those are the kinds of lungs you need for president. Well, Bernie Sanders would have... Well, he certainly had the best lungs president of the Democratic candidates last year, in my opinion. <laughs> um, but interestingly, if anyone wants to give it a listen, that eight-and-a-half-hour filibuster has been turned into a lo-fi beat. Anyway, the, the point is that <laughs> every single member has the... Well, as, as Joe was rightly saying, uh, is there a practical issue? There probably is. People can talk forever. Not everyone would be heard, sure. But, I mean, that's just a technicality, isn't it? I think that something that you're actually neglecting when we're talking about this practical issue of number of representatives per however many hundred thousand people and that's that the US is a federal system right so it's not just the central congress and senate I'm sorry um, house and senate they've got all of that kind of exists on a state level I'm not completely familiar and I'm not sure everyone listening will be completely familiar with how state governments work in the US well, I mean, obviously it varies but broadly speaking every state has a, has a governor the governor is the sort of mini president for that particular state. It, basically, everything that is replicated on the federal level, i.e., in DC, we have the supreme, we have three branches of the federal government: the, uh, the judiciary, the legislature, and the executive, is translated into individual states. You have the governor, which is the executive, mini president, of we just said, the supreme court of that particular state, and the legislature. And sometimes you have uh, bicameral legis uh, legislation, which is two houses, as we have on the federal level, we have the Senate. And we have the um, House of Representatives, and sometimes it's unicameral uh, when it's just one one House of uh, Representatives. Uh, so yeah, a, a lot of lot of checks and balances. Um, so is it the case that the people who are elected to the state le legislatures can also stand to be a member of the House of Representatives on a on a national level? Or, or yeah, I mean, or you can't do both at the same time. But you can't do both. Broadly at the same speaking, time. a career politician, you you tend to start out on a state level and running for the you know the state legislature. And then from that you make a run for maybe U.S. Congress, maybe governor of that state. Who knows? But there isn't really any kind of. Are you talking about communication between the federal three branches and the interstate yeah. three branches? Yeah. There isn't really any kind of interaction between the two. Is that right? I mean, it would vary from case to case. Well, I'm just I'm just wondering because I think that quite a good way um, for demo for democracy to function in the state is for there to be an interaction between um, local politics and, and also national politics. 
and definitely to bring dem democracy back into America. I think it would be quite an effective thing to, to maybe have m more of a communication between um, representatives on a, on a state level and representatives on a national level. Um, Joe, you, you, I, I have to press you on this. I, I think I tried a bit earlier, but you keep saying bring back. Maybe, maybe you meant to say back. Is there something that America used to have uh, in, in, in its democratic process that it, doesn't, that it no longer has? Is that what you think? Um, no, I don't think that. I I think that the American democracy has always been very flawed, but I think that those flaws in American democracy, within the last sort of ten years, have, have become a lot more pronounced, uh, particularly with the rise of social media and the internet. And I think that now that we are familiar with these flaws in the American system, they really have no no place to exist anymore, because uh, it's quite clear that America is losing some of its um, democratic potential due to these flaws in the system that are more consistently being exploited. So when I say bring back American democracy, I don't mean that these flaws didn't always exist. Yeah. I, mean, I mean that now these flaws are being exploited a lot more, and that is undermining democracy in America. Yeah, I, I always find it really interesting when people say that America has been a democracy for 200 and whatever, 120 years. Whereas in reality, the U.S. has been a democracy since circa 1970. <laughs> yeah. I'm not. I'm not sure when people in America, uh, black people in America, could vote, but I think it it was earlier in the 20th century at least. Yeah, but, but it wasn't until 1965. Wasn't until Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, it wasn't until 1965 that they they actually uh, could vote in large numbers. Well, that, that was actually a law that said you cannot be turned back at the polls if you're black. Definitely, that, that's an example of where there was a flaw with the sort of electoral system, uh, and that was at least overturned to an extent by, by laws. And obviously, there's still many flaws with... Uh, improved, not fixed, is probably... Yeah, sure, reason. improved. Yeah. But no, but p particular aspects were mended, and now there are, there are other problems which prevent black people from voting. Like I mean, in class I mean, they, democracy is not something that you uh, just achieve as a trophy. I think, I don't know, say South Africa in 1994... It's not, it's not a trophy you then put on the shelf. Democracy is a high-maintenance thing yeah. that needs to be constantly overlooked. Because if it doesn't, then, as you say, there's failures. Because of the, of the uh, system of passing big legal bills in America, because it's, because it's such a difficult thing to do, there has, uh, the, these problems have accumulated, and they're recognised, and they're, they're known to be problems, but uh, they're very rarely changed, because there is this sort of uh, obsession with the status quo in America. So, the Electoral College, the elephant in the room we haven't uh, yet addressed. Uh, so, f for those of you not familiar, uh, the Electoral College system is uh, essentially, broadly speaking, similar to the United Kingdom's first-past-the-post, i.e. the country is divided into different sections, and in each section, the candidate with the most votes takes all the votes. Uh, that, broadly speaking, is the case in most of the United States states. That's the first point. The second point is, uh, whereas in the UK, each constituency has the same weight, i.e. just one, and in the United States, uh, different states have different weights according, broadly, to how many people live in that state. So, for instance, Alaska has three electoral votes, um, electoral college votes, sorry, uh, and California has 55 because 
you know, no one lives in Alaska and everyone lives in, in California, the most populous state in America. Um, so the, the consequences of this system are actually that, on average, uh, 100 million people who vote on election day, and these are people who vote, their, vo that their vote is useless. Because, uh, it, it, for instance, if you're a Republican in New York, uh, you know, New York always votes Democrat, at least since uh, recent times, or if you're a, a Republican in Hawaii, if, if, you're, a, if you're a Democrat in, uh, I was going to say Georgia, but actually Georgia's looking <laughs> more, more Democrat-leaning, well, at least more of a basket, I'd say. Uh, but, yeah, the point is that, just like in the UK, many, many, many uh, votes are useless. And it actually, it disencourages people from voting, because, you know, why do I need to vote if I live in Connecticut? Uh, my candidates going to win regardless. The, the most shocking fact from the 2016 election for me is that 100 million people didn't vote. It seems with that many people deciding not to vote, there's clearly a problem, right? The USA has comparatively one of the lowest voter turnout rates yeah. on average. I think the average voter US voter turnout is 58%. And do we, do we think that's democratic or not? Turnout, well, low turnout is inherently less democratic than high turnout. Democracy is meant to be the sort of rule of the people, and if that rule is done in a sort of um, Madisonian fashion, that kind of means that every time you have a general election or a presidential election, you want as many people to vote in that as possible, because they are going to nominate a representative for them. So what's the solution to that? Compulsory turnout? Ooh, big question. Um, assuming that's going to be your last resort, of effectively, compulsory um, voting. The first thing is change the system. If, if it's proportional representation, all of a sudden every vote counts. That's why, generally speaking, turnout increases for referendums. Cause yeah, you, you're, you're more likely to vote if you know that your vote will count. Yeah. I mean, it's a sort of, I'm sure everyone in the UK is familiar with the term safe seat where somebody says, oh, I would vote Labour, but I'm in an S&P you know, safe seat, so there's not really much point. Or someone might say, I would vote Green, but they're not really going to have a chance of winning my constituency, so there's no point. Change the system to proportional, and those people who are potentially like disenfranchised at the moment because the party that actually represents them um, doesn't have a chance of winning, change the system, and all of a sudden they can get involved in politics and increased participation is only a good thing for democracy. So we've discussed in quite a lot of detail the ways in which America can be changed uh, for the better in order to um, facilitate a more democratic turnout and, and generally just a more democratic system. But perhaps we should look forward so what can be done within the next four years by the two presidential candidates? And what can realistically be, be done within that time by them in order to mend America and, and uh, not have another election like 2020? It's a bold assum assumption of you to make that Donald Trump does not want another election like 2020. So maybe we should like talk about what happens if he wins first, right? We, we, we can, although I, I would like to say something specific that could be done regardless of whoever wins the election. Uh, and it's to do with the Electoral College, and it's to do with abolishing the Electoral College, because I, I can already hear people uh, on, on the other side of this podcast listening to it thinking, 
Oh, there's no way you can have forced representation. It's unconstitutional. It's illegal. The Constitution. The Constitution gives power to each individual, each individual state, to award their electors however they want. So therefore, uh, if if California made it state law that uh, they will they will award their 55 electors to the winner of the uh, vote of the popular vote nationwide. They can do that on their own, regardless of who is in the White House uh, or who is in the Senate. So, if enough states—and by the way, there is a coalition of states, 15 states at the moment, plus the District of Columbia—if enough states join this uh, interstate coalition to make up more than 270 electoral votes, which is the, the, the finishing line needed to win an election, then by default, America's voting system will change to proportional representation. And the White House can do nothing about it because the power is within the states. And I, I can already hear people, you know, I can already hear you guys imagining, oh, it probably is the coastal elites, so-called coastal elites, Democrat states, they're in this coalition. That's broadly speaking, that's true. You know, it's Connecticut, New York, California, Nevada, uh, I think Nevada, can't remember, um, etc. But you know, we shouldn't give up hope because as I said, this is a state issue, and if if enough people vote for their governor or their uh, state legislature, this, this could change. Yeah, and no, I don't think being Democrat or Republican is, is necessarily even an indicating factor for what states are going to support it, because naturally the um, electoral college system will always benefit the establishment, the, the government, the party that is in charge of that state, right? In, in somewhere like New York, where there is still a significant number of Republicans who don't get in because of the electoral college system, um, you'd naturally imagine that the democratic establishment there would be more reluctant to to change the system because they want to remain in power. New York are part of that coalition. Yeah. I might. I actually would like to disagree with you on that on this particular point because I think that the proportional representation system as a whole benefits the Republicans more than it benefit benefits benefits the Democrats. Small caveat with that: it does at the moment. However, if if we look at the, I think it's 1.5 billion uh, votes that have been cast ever in American elections, uh, there is none of the two parties come out on top. Largely speaking, it's neck and neck. And even recently, in 2004, in the world was a very different place. 2004, but even recently, you know, George Bush in 2004 won by three million votes. So it's, it's yeah, sorry, the popular vote. It's the same margin, by the way. Uh, which Hillary Clinton won with, uh, popular vote-wise in 2016. So it, it's not the case, necessarily, that more voters need to benefit the Democrats. It has done in recent times, sure, uh, but you know, there's, no reason, there's no reason not to aspire to a bipartisan agreement on this. Generally speaking, the, the majority of Americans are in favour of being socially more liberal. Oh yeah, which for is, sure. So unless the Republicans drastically change their stance, in the next election and the election after that and the one after that the they're going to keep losing the popular vote they're going to keep yeah. losing the popular vote but because the way the states are weighted at the moment at least favours them they're not going to want to change so should we then think about what happens if Trump's elected what Trump is actually going to do to this system yeah. how can he can he is he going to turn it around and no, make it better guys or no, is there a lot worse coming obviously he's not going to do that 
So <laughs> straight away, if Trump wins, then I mean this whole, this whole debate silly because there's not going to be a turnaround. Um, and the the only way forward if Trump wins, <laughs> if we if we're looking towards the next four years and trying to reform American democracy is a massive revolution. Civil war of comrades. Yes, exactly. By the way, a poll the other day uh, reported by the Independent newspaper uh, reported that f- 40% of Americans believe civil war is likely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, which sounds funny, which sounds funny, but of course it, it, its implications is, are, are, are not very uh, not very pleasant. Um, so, yeah. maybe, if we're talking about Trump, maybe instead of talking about how Trump might try and improve things if we're kind of in agreement that he's not going to try and change the system which at the moment benefits him what how can it get worse oh it can get much worse I mean for instance if the Republicans took up the Senate or sorry kept the Senate and had more than 60 votes meaning they you know they, the Democrats would have no access to filibuster uh, so actually the in, in the Senate in, in a lot of ways, that's the more interesting race uh, on Tuesday. On, so, so just to Tuesday clarify, you think that um, the Repu- a Republican victory in the Senate has a greater impact on how elections occur in the future of America than whether or not Trump's president does? I mean, Sarah Churchwell is a professor of, I, I think, English literature, American, at the University of London, uh, said the other day, Mitch McConnell can pull the plug on Trump whenever he wants. And frankly, that's true. Surely the only reason that uh, the Senate is so important at the moment, uh, who, who wins over Congress, is due to the fact that Trump is in the White House. Say it wasn't Trump and it was some completely different Republican leader, maybe, maybe a more moderate Republican. That would be a very different situation from one we find now, where Congress is such a crucial battleground. You, you say that, but like, to be honest, I, I, haven't, I, I thought we would see a, a real chasm between the establishment Republican Party i.e. that make up the, the Senate and President Trump but that's just not been the case these last four years I mean I, I'd go as far as to say that the Republican Party currently is more oh, united Trump than the Democrat Oh, yeah. more united than, oh, yeah. than, the, Demo- than the Democratic Party and that seems absurd because Trump was this break in the status quo that was going to really shake things up So why has how has the Republican Party become the Trump Party in, 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 in July of 2016, when the Republican National Convention took place and Donald Trump famously declared, you know, the American dream is broken, I alone can fix it. And plenty, plenty of, the, of, of former Republican, even presidents, even, you know, George Bush Jr. Uh, didn't back him. It, it, it looked like the, the party was going to divide, and yet it hasn't. And I'm, I'm aware that, like, a few senior figures have detached themselves from Trump in recent months. Uh, you know, such as Mitt Romney, such as well, Mitt Romney. If you, even if you're going back, Bush and the McCain yeah, family. The McCain family, not to mention Trump's own personal team, such as Michael Cohen um, and Ambassador John Bolton. Um, you know, in, in, when, when Trump is running, he's this awful shake-up guy. But then, when he nominates Mike Pence for vice president, he embraces the evangelical right of the party, and actually, he's continued to pursue that agenda throughout these four years. And you know that can be seen in in, in his three nominations to the Supreme Court. Actually, so, so the ar- the argument party. you're making is that the Republican Party is quite united. The yeah, congressional right. battleground is a very important one to look at. Yeah, because you can't rely on the Republicans to implode. 
the way it can get worse is because they can then use, use that power to exploit the electoral system further, right? Um, for like further restrictions on mail-in ballots and things, make voting less accessible. If they make poll watching, which is something that Donald Trump's a big fan of, um, like less frowned upon, if they normalise that kind of behaviour, then you're going to see voter suppression increase. So that is the danger. They can continue on this path they're on. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely um, early sort of dictatorial measures. It, it's it's terrifying. I I I'm scared. My, <laughs> my 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 biggest emotion leading up to this election is fear. It's not excitement for Biden. It's not hope. It's not anger. It's just fear. So if we <laughs> try and move away from um, making people too too depressed about what's coming up, gone. Uh, what what might may or may not be coming up, um, how can America be fixed? Let let's try and remain optimistic about this. <laughs> Center for Biden, guys. How can Biden fix America within and the next four years to prevent Trump or the Republican Party from uh, disrupting American democracy further? Well, I think that the ver- at the very top of Joe Biden's agenda should be electoral reform. That means the electoral college needs to go, or it needs to be at least at the very least it needs to be reformed. The voting needs to be more efficient. I think you can't have eight-hour queues outside a voting booth. It's just it's just not a thing that can that should exist in what in theory is the largest global superpower in the world. It's meant to represent democracy, and people are waiting for eight hours in a line to vote. That's these these little details. They need to be resolved because they can't continue. If they continue, then the then the United States are going to continue to have a low electric electoral turnout, they're going to continue to function effectively in a less democratic way. And also, as we spoke about earlier, money in politics, that needs to change. Will, will Biden change money in politics? Well, I, I, on, on, on that particular point, okay. um, right now, obviously, the divide in the Supreme Court is two-thirds conservative. It's perfectly within the power of the president to appoint more judges, not just new judges. Pack the court. And, and controversial as it may sound, I would think that on the right the first thing on the agenda not for ideological reasons but purely to protect things like you know civil rights being stripped away uh, women's abortion rights being stripped, uh, stripped away uh, they need they simply need to add more judges they need to add more judges to the court that will mean that the balance is more you know balanced yeah, in the I mean, Supreme Court if it's a 6-3 split with the 6 being Republican yeah, it's going to be very hard for Biden to make any monumental change is that feasible I mean, yes, constitutionally, yeah, it's completely feasible. Constitutionally, a- appointing two more judges, maybe four more judges, maybe six more judges. Um, by the way, it needs to be even numbers because the the split needs to be it needs to be an odd amount of judges in the court for the, not that speed to be an impasse. Um, uh, he will annoy a lot of people if if uh, so-called President Biden actually does that. And being a as Trump always points out, someone who's been in politics for 47 years, I worry that he may not want to annoy a lot of people uh, because, you know, he's, he's a guy who's got a lot of friendships with people right across the aisle. I mean, he's a big believer in bipartisanship. It seems pretty unlikely that Biden is going he's to take it. He's, he's going to be a bit shy. Is he, going to to make, is he going to do anything extreme? Is that likely? Well, I think, think 
Biden, Biden is likely, far more likely to, to succumb to pressure. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Biden's ultimate goal is to unite the country, he said that, right? If he fails to f fix this mess that we're in, or at least try to fix it, protests are going to continue. Biden doesn't want that. Biden wants his presidency to be four years of stability. It might be that in order to provide that stability, he's going to have to make some decisions that maybe fall slightly further left of where he stands politically. Not to mention that his party is, as Trump put it the other day, going socialist. Obviously, it's not very accurate, but um, it's, 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 it's just a fact that the, the, Democratic, the Democratic Party has a very powerful left-wing side, namely with people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So, um, so to summarise, uh, what do you both think need to be the main changes, and how likely do you think those changes are? Well, I think first most obvious step, electoral college needs to go. I think that Biden is likely to try and implement some sort of reform to the electoral college, even if it's just because it's in his own benefit, it's in his own party's benefit, even if it's purely self-serving. Um, I think that that's fairly likely that the reform for the electoral college will exist in some state. Whether or not he abolishes it totally and goes proportional representation is a different matter. I think that's less likely. There's also there has there has to be ways to end voter suppression. He needs to get turnout up, and in order to do that, that means make mail-in voting more accessible, which I think is actually quite likely. I think that's something he's he's very likely to do, and sort of put an end to ideas such as poll watching which again I think is a small change he's more likely to do make the system more efficient which is something he's said himself that he's going to try and do and how, and how likely do you think he should do that? with a democratic senate fairly likely with a republican senate not so much and uh, just so you know guys the economists model puts the democrats chance of winning back the senate at 53% so not that that means anything of course most people gave Hillary Clinton 92% chance of winning in 2016 she then didn't, as we all know and remember. Um, That's close. Yeah. <laughs> I think there are people need to be aware that on Tuesday, America isn't just electing its president. America is electing uh, right from their state senators uh, to some governors to some U.S. senators and Congress and all congressmen and women are up for re-election on Tuesday. And I, as I've alluded to before, the power to change electoral uh, system in the United States lies within the states. So it's not just going to rely on who lives in the White House. People who live in, in, in state mansions or in the state legislatures, all, every single vote on Tuesday is important because, you know, for example, as we said, it's, if, if the electoral reform is going to happen, it needs to happen from the ground up from the states. Um, and so that's the first point. The second point is obviously on a more practical level for Biden, I think they need to pack the court. There's, I, I see it as a moral obligation to a, a Democrat who has uh, largely, you know, espoused women's rights, uh, gay rights, etc. I see it as a moral obligation, uh, in, in, indeed, an ethical duty for him and his party to pack the court, annoy a few people, whatever, um, in order. Literally, it's only for. It's not an ideological thing to to annoy people, as I say. It's for the end goal of making sure that people's rights are not stripped away to you know, 19th century uh, levels. What are your election predictions? My prediction is that on the night 
it, it will go Republican because Democrats are far more likely to vote by mail, especially this election, given their kind of attitude towards COVID. And that from that point onwards, there's going to be a lot of conflict. And that's probably because Donald Trump, despite voting by mail himself, and his whole family voting by mail, by the way, um, is probably going to try and undermine the, validi the validity of those mail-in ballots. And that's when all hell breaks loose. And so my prediction is chaos is the answer. And I think chaos is the winner. I don't think we're going to know for a while who's going to win. My prediction is on the night, Republican. Overall, it would end up Democrat, but there's a big gap in between where Trump and the Supreme Court can potentially cause some damage. I, I'd agree with you. So is it that, that's you as well, Joe? That's uh, me as well. Adrian? Uh, yes, as you said, I, I think there's a big possibility that on the night Trump simply says to his people, you know, cry havoc and, and, and let's slip the dogs of war. Uh, but I, I have to be really honest, I, I've got the, the latest poll average of, of, of the New York Times, which takes, in, by the way, an average of all the polls, state polls, uh, nationwide in the, in, the, in the United States. And I, I'm looking at the key swing states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, you know, in, in Wisconsin, Biden's up by 10 points. Uh, in, in Michigan, he's up by eight. Pennsylvania up by six. Florida's slightly less, two within the margin of error. Uh, there's also a column that points to, that says, if the polls were as wrong as they were in 2016, which, by the way, if they are, I, I would sort of say to these polling companies, what the hell have you been doing the last four years if not fixing the terrible thing you got wrong in 2016? Um, I, I, if... I, I, I think that if a Trump if a Trump if Trump is re-elected, serious questions serious questions have to be asked. Um, I mean not just at the polling companies, but you know, if I were a betting man, I would I would bet on Joe Biden winning on on Tuesday. I think it's completely the so rational thing to predict. You heard it here first. Politics with ears predict <laughs> Joe Biden. Biden as the next president of the United Controversial States. Controversial opinion with a potential. Civil war in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been Toby. <laughs> uh, I'm still Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and and I've uh, I have been and I still am and I still will be Adria. Uh, to all our listeners out there, thank you for listening. Have a great one and you know do good afternoon, do spread the message. And good night. Do spread the message. Godspeed. Bye. <laughs>